Help us, Lord, to live in obedience, to be those that live marked by you. In Christ's precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Again, understand that this morning's message is abbreviated because of Advanced Sunday. And this is also part two of last week's message. And I suspect I may not get through it today either. Um, but at any rate, that's just the way life is. And I trust that uh, it will be interesting nonetheless and certainly relevant to our day. I want to begin this morning with First Chronicles because it's one of the several sequels to the book of Judges, and I want to stick my toe in the waters of First Chronicles, going to chapter 17 in particular, where the Lord is speaking to King David of just some of what he has planned for his special people, that is Israel, in which David, of course, fills a very big place being used by God to bring his plans to fulfillment. This is what we read in First Chronicles chapter 17, beginning in verse 7. Now, therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep to be leader over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make you a name like the name of the great ones who are in the earth. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and not be moved again. And the wicked will not waste them any more as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. And I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, I tell you that the Lord will build a house for you. The prominence of the issue of land in the history of Israel is a central theme that begins in the very first book of the Bible in Genesis, and it all comes to a head in the very last book of the Bible, called Revelation. Understanding history in the distant past will help us to wade through the oftentimes disparate accounts of history in our own past, which was going to then enable us to discern what really is true about our own current history. Now, does this matter to Mainers? Probably not to most. But truly it should, because decisions are made daily concerning the present turmoil in the Middle East in general and with respect to Israel in particular. On a rather superficial level, although not unimportant, is that billions of our tax dollars are being poured into nations whose roots go right back to the Old Testament in the Scriptures. Currently, about 100,000 people have been killed and 2 million people displaced in the Syrian civil war. And this, though, is just, as I'm going to call it, the halftime show. The real game commences with the extermination of Israel, whose roots go, again, as far back, of course, as Abraham. And everything starts to really escalate when Ishmael, with Abraham helping God out to bring about the son that wasn't happening fast enough through Sarah, he goes into his concubine and he gives birth to Ishmael. And from there, the hatred between Ishmael and Isaac is what begins the whole Palestinian-Arab-Palestinian-Jewish turmoil that continues to this very day. 
Now, before you roll your eyes, I want you to understand that this morning, contrary to what I said somewhat facetiously at the beginning, is not a lesson in politics. It is a lesson in biblical history and its application to current day realities. Last week, we were in the book of Judges, and actually we are still in the book of Judges. This is just a little a little uh, trail off to the side. And we were in the midst of a war between the king of the Ammonites and God's people, again called Israel. As the battle began, Israel was without leadership, but quickly drafted a man by the name of Jephthah to become their military leader as well as their civil leader over the land of Gilead. Now, one of the first things that General Jephthah does is he sends a delegation to the leader, the king of the Ammonites, to find out what has provoked him to take military action against Israel. What we read in Judges chapter 11 and verse 13 is that the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, saying, Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan. Now, therefore, restore it peaceably. The king's charge and his reason for war is to take back what he claims is his in the first place. That should sound really familiar if you are at all informed about the Arab-Israeli conflict today. The king charges that Israel had stolen his land, and if they give it back, then he's going to pull back his troops, and everybody's going to live happily ever after. Which sounds like every political speech on the issue in the last 65 years by world leaders trying to bring a modicum of peace to the Middle East in general and to that tiny little sliver of land the size of New Jersey called Israel. If Israel would just cooperate, as the way the storyline goes, and give the poor homeless Palestinians, I'm going to talk about that, gives back the Palestinians' land for themselves, they'd all buy the world a Coke and live together in peaceful harmony. If verse 13 of Judges 11 was all we knew of the Israelites' situation, we would probably side with the Ammonites. But the, reckon, but the recollection of the leader of the Ammonites was dangerously faulty. It was historically flawed. And so Jephthah, through his diplomatic corps, attempts to set him straight on the facts of the history of the Middle East to that point. And much to the dismay of the Ammonite king, Jephthah, who is an outcast of Israel, this again is all repeat from last week's message, has excellent recall as to how the land in question came into their possession. And in verses 15 through 21 of Judges chapter 11, he sets the king straight concerning the historical record rather than the king's skewed recall. Now, in light of the facts of the last 300 years, this is how far back the Ammonites appeal for their rightful claim to the land goes, Jephthah gave him last week four reasons, four objective, incontrovertible reasons, verses 15 to 27, why the king's claims to the land are hollow. Four reasons your claim is wrong, Jephthah says. Number one, my ancestors 
won the land, merely defending themselves against the paranoid invasion of your ancestor, King Sion, and against all odds, we happened to win. That was not the expected outcome from either, from, certainly from the Israeli side. According to the rule of law, Jephthah says, paraphrasing, the land became ours. Again, this is all repeat from last week. I go into more detail about this. Number two reason he gives is that our God, Jehovah, gave us the land. Just like your God, Chemosh, gave you the lands that you have. Again, there's more explanation needed there, but it's old material. You can get that online, or you can sign up for a CD in the back of that message. Thirdly, he says, look, our people have lived here 300 years so far, so how come none of your ancestral kings, none of your peoples, not even the dreaded king of Moab, tried to get the land back? It was because they all knew the rules of the game. Again, explained last week. So he's saying to the king that if someone in your ancestral line over three centuries truly thought that they had legal claim to the land that we're now on, they would have reclaimed it long before now. And the last reason he gives is that they, meaning Israel, have been and still are totally just with respect to all of this, and it's the Ammonites who are the ones that are unjust. And in light of that, the true judge of all things, he tells the king, is going to rule between you and me. Well, what we are reading in this ancient book is the precursor to all of what is going on in the Middle East today with respect to lands and territories in dispute by an improperly defined people called Palestinians. When something is repeated often enough, and something is repeated long enough, it takes on the quality of unquestionable truth. I can give you many examples from today, just a few. Global warming. People are born homosexual. An egg and a sperm coming together in conception are not human. And finally, Israel has stolen the land from the Palestinians. It is Israel who is standing in the way of Middle East peace. So let me bring us up to speed on the situation, the real historical situation in the Middle East today, with a crash course in Middle Eastern history as it bears on the dispute over whose land is whose. And remember, this isn't just a boring political squabble between greedy people. It is the very pathway to the end of all of history and life on earth known as the Battle of Armageddon. Where do we begin? We could go all the way back again to Abraham. And by the way, I did that in when I really uh, I taught this over a 10-week period of time about eight years ago, I think it is. So this is a huge condensation. And instead of beginning with Abraham, I'm going to begin in 1917 with Great Britain, who is in control of the land, and what were called the Balfour Declaration. I start at 1970 with the Balfour Declarations because this becomes the modern foundation for the decisions of the world governing bodies. Underscore that. 
Not for some person or some group, people groups, indiscriminate decisions or greed, but rather this is what is undergirding the world governing body's decisions concerning a Jewish homeland. The declaration looked with favor upon a homeland for the Jew, which is important because Palestine, now hear this, which is a general name for a geographical region encompassing today what we would know as Jordan and Syria and Lebanon and Iraq and parts of Egypt and probably parts of Iran, perhaps. It's this huge geographical region that is just called Palestine. You should see on the wall behind us the picture of ancient Palestine. I know it's blurry for the people up front here. Uh, but to give you a little bit of perspective, this will be clear on subsequent pictures. This area here, again, is, is this is a quite a large area. And if you could see Israel clearly here, it would be a little, I'm looking for the Jordan River, which I can't even see on here. But it would be come down like this, but you'll see on subsequent films. This whole area it's, is just called Palestine. I'm underscoring this and emphasizing this for a very sp- specific reason. All right, so right now, this, this land mass called Palestine is under British control as of 1917. There was never a city, never a state, never a province or a country known as Palestine. The region called Palestine was a large parcel of land captured by the British from the Turks. This goes all the way back. We say, well, okay, what happened in that whole thing? Well, this happened during the Ottoman Empire. Well, okay, so it was really the Turks' land. Well, no. Where'd the Turks get it? The Turks captured it from a people group, actually slaves, called the Mamluks. Where'd they get it? Well, they captured it from the Crusaders. Where'd the Crusaders get it? They captured it from the Muslims. Who captured it from? Rome. Who captured it from... Israel. This is verifiable historic reality. Just saying. So, we come up to 1922 to the League of Nations. The League of Nations was the the embryonic form of what today we know as the United Nations. And in 1922, they gave Great Britain, this is now the world governing body, They gave Great Britain the mandate for Palestine, as it was called. Namely, to establish a homeland in the region called Palestine for the Jewish Palestinians. The mandate for Palestine was not some naive vision briefly embraced by a smattering of the international community. But 51 member countries, which was the entire League of Nations at the time, the entire League of Nations unanimously declared on July 24, 1922, quoting, whereas recognition has been given, listen to the wording here, it speaks volumes Recognition has been given to the historical connection of the Jewish people with Palestine and to the grounds for reconstituting their national home in that country. Unanimous. The mandate for Palestine 
said that this area now of Palestine should be given to the Jews as their homeland. This was not a suggestion. This was on order of the League of Nations, every member country belonging, affirming it, giving the mandate to Britain that this is what they must do, not what they might want to consider. And of course, this was all with Great Britain's, again, signing on as well. That should be the end of the story. End of the squabbles of the land in the Middle East. But under pressure from the Arab world, Great Britain took the area away from the Jews. In other words, Great Britain was given a mandate by the world governing body to establish a homeland in Palestine for the Palestinian Jews. And they started, but then they reneged. Why? Well, you'll see. It takes us up to 1932 to 1935. Adolf Hitler is beginning his ascendancy, and he's beginning to persecute the Jews. However, for several years at the beginning of all that, the world didn't know about what was happening in Germany concerning the Holocaust. 1935 to 37, the Jews begin to flee from Germany and they start trying to go to other countries. They try to emigrate to Australia and to Canada and to the United States, but the emigration quotas of those countries prohibited them from doing so in the numbers that they needed to get out of Germany by Jews literally fleeing for their lives, as you know. So many tried to get into Israel giving rise to increased Arab hostilities against the emigrating Jews. So the owners of the land, Great Britain at this time, in 1938 issued what were called the White Papers. The White Papers were given, again, to explicitly define what they meant by a Jewish homeland. Excerpting the White Papers, I quote, in order that this community should have the best prospect of free development and provide a full opportunity for the Jewish people to display its capacities, it is essential that it should know that it is in Palestine, listen to the language, it is in Palestine as of right and not on sufferance, meaning what? Meaning, in other words, it is the Jews' inherent right, historically connected right, that that land is theirs. It is not on sufferance, meaning it's not just because some group of people voted that they should have it. Extremely telling language. That is the reason why it is necessary that the existence, still quoting, of a Jewish national home in Palestine should be internationally guaranteed and that it should be formally recognized to rest upon ancient historic connection. And I believe, I'm not positive, but I'm pretty sure that it was Winston Churchill that issued those declarations in the White Papers. Again, that should settle it, right? Well, not exactly. Because you see, now we're up to 1939. And things were escalating with Adolf Hitler's rampage. And Great Britain needed the Arab nations as allies in the event that World War II, in fact, broke out. 
And so Great Britain, again, because of their pressure from the Arab nations, limited emigration to the Jews trying to get in to their homeland. And World War II indeed broke out. The only thing, or the only thing that the Jews could do who survived the Holocaust to this point was to try to get to Israel. But Great Britain was still only allowing a trickle of the numbers of people getting into the country. But in the meantime, it's also getting out, more and more information is getting out about the truth and the reality of what Hitler's doing in Germany to the Jews. And so there is a worldwide developing pro-Jewish sentiment on the rise. Great Britain goes back to the United Nations. They are fed up with all the, the workings and the machinations and the distractions of this land that they had been controlling. And so they go back to the United Nations. They give them the land and they wash their hands of it. And they say, here, you fix what they called the Jewish problem. 1947. The establishment of a Jewish homeland now rests in the lap of what is now the United Nations. And the United Nations, again, votes to partition this land mass called Palestine. But now, again, we've gone down the timeline of history and some things have changed concerning that land mass of Palestine. Like what? 80% of it, it's a big number, 80% of what was Palestine had already been given to Jordan, leaving 20% of that whole land area left to be apportioned, which obviously is far less than what was promised in the mandate for Palestine by the League of Nations and promised by Great Britain. So the United Nations cuts the remainder of Palestine in half splitting it between the Jewish Palestinians and the Arab Palestinians. And this is what we see. Remember, initially you had Palestine, which was like something like this, and then it became this in the mandate, and then all of a sudden they give 80% of it to Jordan, and now this is what is left to give to Israel for uh, the sake of seeing the size of it. Again, it's the size of New Jersey. It is a veritable sliver of land and much less than what the world governing bodies had said was to be theirs all along. The Jewish Palestinians accepted it. They weren't happy about it, but they accepted it. The Arab Palestinians did not. The new part of the land of Palestine, now called Israel, is flourishing. And that may not really communicate well to us, but it is flourishing in every way. And the Arab Palestinians are perpetually ticked off about the land given to them, So they are growing in their resentment, of course, blaming everything on the Jews who are, did I say prospering? Who are prospering like what? They are farming with bounty 
And their land that you see is in the middle, or it is right smack the Negev Desert. But they're an agricultural community now. Through innovation, through hard work, through intensive labor, and through more innovation. While the Arab Palestinians sit around grousing about how the UN done them wrong, but of course blaming Israel for all their woes. So the Palestinian Arabs commence a protracted campaign to make life miserable for the Jewish Palestinians, and Israel has been under siege, literally, from that day until this day right now. In May 14th, on May 14th, 1948, we have the monumental historical occurrence of Israel declaring statehood. Now, anybody can go out there and declare statehood, right? I mean, Maine could say, you know what? We're becoming a country unto ourselves. We are no longer part of the United States. Well, it doesn't carry any weight unless the rest of the world recognizes it. So they can say whatever they want. And their declaration is meaningless unless it's recognized by the world. The most important thing at this time for Israel is to be recognized by the world as a nation and not just on paper if Israel was going to survive. Israel was not unreasonable in its declaration, nor was Israel insensitive to its Arab neighbors. Although they were now fully independent, this is what Israel declared. You don't hear this in the news. You don't find out about it in history. Any Palestinian Arab living in the newly declared state of Israel was allowed to remain as a, not just as a squatter, okay, just go, yeah, we'll tolerate you, but they were allowed to stay there in Israel as first-class citizens with full representation in the Knesset which is their governing body like our Congress. And, of course, they were allowed to keep their land. But the surrounding Arab nations are still perpetually ticked off at Israel, going back to Ishmael. See, this isn't just about land and about politics. It is spiritual at its heart, just like everything we've been reading about in the book of Judges, concerning geopolitical realities is spiritual at the core. Which is why I hover a bit when people talk to me about your town political. There is no such thing. It is all spiritual. So the Arab nations tell the Arabs who are living now in Israel, pack your bags and get out of there. Because we are planning, tell me if this language sounds familiar, I'll give you a hint. Ahmed Ahmadinejad. We are going to drive Israel into the Mediterranean. So pack your bags and get out of the way. Or you'll be mowed down in the process. Now when we're finished, 
you'll be able to go back and not only have your land, but those nasty Jews as well. Okay. Huh. The population of Israel at this time is 620,000. The population of the Arab nations is 80 million. We're not talking about a fair fight here. We're talking about full expectation of the annihilation of Israel. Contrary to virtually every news story that I have ever heard in the last many decades concerning Israel, in other words, concerning the Palestinian Jews, they did not drive the Palestinian Arabs out of the Arabs' land. They didn't even drive them out of Israel's land, as I already stated. Have you ever heard such a thing before? The Palestinian Arabs left with eager anticipation who were in Israel. They left with eager anticipation of Israel being annihilated. I have to end there. <laughs> All right, that's always good to hear. No, give us more. Oh, if I were only king of the forest. <laughs> you know what? If you're going to be a legislator in the United States of America, I'm going to require that you know something about American history and about world history and about government and about the foundings and origins of this country. But silly me. That would disenfranchise some people. There you go, you're so political. The rest of the story will be the rest of the story. Hang on, stay tuned. Awkward way to end, but that's just the way it goes. Let me have you stand. Remember, we're going to ask the men to stick around for just a few minutes afterwards. And uh, God bless everybody here. <laughs> Give them safety going home. And please exit quickly and do your talking on the outside. Men, come on, stay around, move forward if you want, or stay where you're at.